You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to the 602 Club, TFM's local watering hole, and this time coming at you live from Wakanda, and I'm so excited to be here. Uh, They have just the most incredible food and mixed drinks you could find, and with me, as she is pretty much every single week, the one and only Christy Morris. What's up? Thank you so much for that warm introduction. Uh, It's really lovely being here in Wakanda and hanging out with uh, Shuri... Mbaku. Yeah, I mean, the weather's nice this time of year, too. So, I mean, uh, just sitting back, re- relaxing. Hopefully nothing crazy happens, you know? Yeah. <laughs> nothing crazy. <laughs> well, nothing crazy. Well, we are back, of course, as uh, you can tell in the MCU, as we're going to be talking about the brand new film that came out just this past weekend as we're recording this. Uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which is actually uh, the end of Phase 4. And so, uh, before we dive into everything, though, uh, just a huge thank you as always. We always really do appreciate the fact that you listen. Uh, And so, thank you for listening to the show. And, uh, of course, if you're not, go ahead and subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. So, that way, you will get our episodes as soon as they drop. If you're on a podcatcher or source that allows you to rate podcasts or leave reviews like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you would give us a good old five-star rating and review. It would be amazing. It definitely helps people find the show. And, uh, of course, uh, you can find us all over the place on social media as well. We would really appreciate if you would go over to at the 602 Club and give us a follow and interact with Christy and I there on Twitter. Uh, We're also on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, again, just being able to, to interact with listeners there, um, have people share our shows as well on social media, you know, the best way to help a podcast is word of mouth. So one of those ways to share is not just telling your friends in person, but also on social media. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash Shrek FM. There is a listeners discussion group that you can find called the Babel Conference. You can just search for that in the Facebook search field under the Babel Conference. You'll find us. Uh, you can talk to listeners from all over the world. And we, of course, we've got the website at Shrek.fm where you can see every single thing that we are doing there on the network. Now, if you do like what we're doing here uh, and you'd like it to continue, we'd really appreciate it if you would join our team over at patreon.com slash Shrek FM. We are definitely not where we'd like to be for our monthly level to make sure all the shows can keep coming to you. Uh, It's pretty expensive to make sure that this happens. So again, you can support us over at patreon.com slash track FM. So Christy, I did not put this part on the outline at all, but as I mentioned, this is the end of phase four. Mm -hmm. And so I actually wanted to ask you about that. So, Phase four, uh, and I'm just going to recap it really quickly here for everyone so they know what that entails. Mm -hmm. Uh, It started off with WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, Black Widow, 
the What If series, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, The Eternals, Hawkeye, Spider-Man No Way Home, Moon Knight, Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, Werewolf by Night, and then, of course, ending with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So, I just wanted to ask you before we even kind of dive into the film and everything, uh, Phase 4 is finished. Uh, What did you end up thinking of Phase 4? And I asked my wife this question. If you were to try to define for somebody what Phase 4 was actually about and where we're trying to go after Endgame, what would it be? All over the place. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, just you reading that list, because obviously I don't think most people remember all of them offhand as, oh, that's Phase 4. So that's helpful to know. Um, Just that list feels very inconsistent, I'll say. Um, That kind of naturally at the end of Endgame, um, that was a very natural conclusion. And so it was very interesting to see at that point where the Marvel Universe could go from there. Obviously, there was more material to pull from. Um, Therefore, they've made Phase 4. But I think that it is lacking a common thread like the previous Marvel film phases had. Um, Not that some of the stories aren't interesting. For example, I really enjoyed WandaVision. Um and several other things on that list. But I do feel like they don't all have that common thread that ties them together logically. Mm -hmm. Like the previous one did that, you know, we were leading up to something and that they all felt like part of the bigger whole. These all feel like individual separate Mm -hmm. stories that aren't connected. Yeah. I mean, I think you really nailed it there is is that it just feels all over the place. Um, in all honesty, I, I do almost feel as though they've just been kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, when I look at it in light of knowing that what's going to come in phase five um, and then, of course, six, and that we're actually not going to, get a new Avengers movie I think until phase six where they're going to do the Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars mm-hmm. okay so that makes sense of some of the things they're trying to build towards but you know I, I think you know one of, one of the hallmarks of the, the original phases of the Marvel Universe especially one through three is that you always knew what they were building to because they alluded to it very quickly uh, in the in the first phase that they were building to the Infinity Stones, mm-hmm. and this, I would say, this phase just feels very uh, inconsistent. I think you used an incredible word there. That's really what it is. It's very inconsistent, um, and and I would say that it doesn't really do a great job of preparing people who have no comic knowledge for what they're trying to do. Right. Uh, which is obviously they've cracked open the multiverse uh, and they're going to be playing in that sandbox, but it just feels uh, kind of nebulous, I would say. And um, mm-hmm. 
not well defined. I think it would be the word that that I would choose. Uh, the words that I would choose there that describes Phase Four and and where they seem to be trying to go, and and mainly that that only comes from knowledge of what they just released, um, right? And and what they talked about, you know, is coming. Uh, the fact that we are actually getting Avengers movies that they're building up to. So I I just I do I find it very strange. Um, and what's interesting is that this phase started and ended and it doesn't really start or really end anything. Um, it just kind of seems arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a good word for it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think, uh, to encompass everything, it just feels meandering at this point. Mm-hmm. Like we're just kind of lost in the woods of Marvel stories, and I'm not sure which tree I'm supposed to be looking at as to which is what you know what's really important. Um, and you know, uh, I've definitely uh, missed uh, the trees for the forest, so it's like mm-hmm. I don't really see what's supposed to be important here. So, um, well, yeah, that's 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 an interesting thing. And sorry, the only other thing I wanted to add to that that I thought of that is important is also there's a an issue with the storytelling here um, overall throughout the whole phase where previously you also had a vested interest because because of the previous phases having long time very well known in popular culture characters. Like Spider-Man, like, you know, um, I was about to say Batman. What am I thinking? <laughs> like Batman. <laughs> nope. Yeah, you know, Batman. <laughs> he's, a, he's a part of that multiverse. Listen, Kevin Conroy's on my mind right now. Um, yes. Uh, rest, in, rest in peace, yeah. Kevin Conroy. Um, but no, I'm sorry. So, you know, like Spider-Man, Captain America, Hulk, those characters have been around for a very long time. Whereas now we're not only starting a new phase without those characters, but also bringing in a lot of new characters that were created not that long ago in comics. So I think that there's not a problem with bringing in new characters if you introduce them well enough. So I think that's another issue is that why do I care about Shang-Chi? You know what I mean? Like, I need more background as to why he's important to the MCU and a better story about him as a character to make me interested in his development. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I You know, Shang-Chi was one of my favorites, actually, from this, this phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the best example would be, say, uh, I think for everyone... The Eternals. It's oh, like, yeah. I don't understand why I'm supposed to care about this and what this has to do with anything, um, you know. And so it that I, I think you, yeah, you just rightly nailed a lot of the issues that have gone on with this. And so um, I wanted to talk a little bit. Obviously, this is a film that has been marked by significant change and tragedy. And there was an original script. And I thought that, it was very interesting that Ryan Coogler, the director, had come up to say this movie was always going to be in some ways about grief, uh, but the grief was going to be the fact that T'Challa had missed five years because he was blipped away. Mm-hmm. And also that Namor was always a part of the story. Um, there would have been maybe some other characters included, but Namor was always there. And so with those two ideas, did that feel like 
the right place to go for the story for you. And basically, I mean, really, you're coming off Endgame and, and, you know, you're telling this story for this character. It would have been the first time that, you know, we had seen him again, really, since, you know, he came back. Um, and so did did that feel like that would have been the right place to go? Yes, absolutely. Because I think, too, it's obviously a very natural way to tie together what happened in real life with Chadwick Boseman um, passing and then with them already looking at how they would have the characters move on from a different kind of grief already. Um, I think it, it fits very well for Kugler and Fahey to go this mm-hmm. route um, and then also be able to pay tribute to Boseman um, with some of the things that they do in the storytelling. Yeah, you know, I think I think that this does sound like a very interesting story to me. Um and part of that I and, and I was really interested to, to to learn that this was meant to be the story in the sense of kind of dealing with grief and, and, and made me wonder when this movie would have come out. Because, you know, I think that sense of grief and what T'Challa was the 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 missing of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that would have had a really uh, interesting impact, you know, uh, for those of us who, you know, in the world, all of us who had been through, uh, you know, the COVID crisis. And right. Um, so the idea of missing time is something that we are very familiar with um, in that. And so that I think that, that would have been an interesting parallel to, to the world that we had been in. You know, I, I would have been very interested. I think I think the thing that makes me the most sad about the fact that, you know, Chadwick was not available for the story is that, one, obviously just the fact that he's gone and he was just such an incredible person. And um, But there was an absolute loss, I think, of storytelling potential there when it came to the character of T'Challa facing off against Namor. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been really interested to see the way that would have changed the thematic elements here uh, because, yeah, there's a there's a big issue that I end up having with the movie. Um, and I wonder if it would have been fixed if it had been T'Challa facing off against Namor instead of Shuri in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that but uh, in a little bit. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, it, it is just when, when you... I will say this too uh, before we move on. I think that they were in a no-win scenario. I think that they hit the, you know, MCU Kobayashi Maru because I don't think we're in a place where they could recast yet, mm-hmm. but they also need to continue the story. And so in many ways, they're, they're up a creek without a paddle. There's no real good way to do this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, this is always going to be maybe the most difficult movie that Marvel has to make just because there's so many extenuating factors that have nothing to do with the story, you know? Um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think maybe the only film that's faced this was the loss of Carrie Fisher. And, you know, we know that for episode nine, Colin Trevorrow, she was the main focal point of that movie. She had a huge role to play. And when she died, he didn't seem to be able to really crack the story again without her and that's one of the that's one of the reasons we moved to jj abrams at that point right Mm -hmm. and so um yeah i i mean it's interesting you have these two major films and the last few years that have had to deal with the loss of somebody who was going to be very important to the story going forward and so yeah i i i mean for any issues that i have with this film um which i do have some but i also do not envy the position that they were in trying to craft this story after somebody so beloved and not just just not just a character but as a person Chadwick Boseman I think he completely embodied the character of Black Panther in the sense of the the honor and the dignity and and just the 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 goodness uh and yeah. and in a way that you know very there are very few people who really play superheroes where really, you really feel that, you know? Um, I mean, we've talked behind the scenes where we both feel like uh, Henry Cavill does that with Superman. He takes it very seriously, his responsibility of of his life reflects on what that character looks like on screen, right? Yeah. He's very careful. So uh, I think Bozeman was very much like that as well and just innately had that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and actually I found a... Um someone had captured a quote from Kevin Feige um, right after Chadwick Boseman passed about the possibility of recasting. Um, And I just wanted to read it real quick because I felt like it really embodies anything I would have said about it as well. Um, He said, Chadwick Boseman was an immensely talented actor and an inspirational individual who affected all of our lives professionally and personally. His portrayal of T'Challa, the Black Panther, is iconic and transcends any iteration of the character in any other medium from Marvel's past. And it's for that reason that we will not recast the character. And I felt like that was simple but fitting explanation about why they didn't want to recast and Later, even Fahey said it felt way too soon to even do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That there yeah. would have been far more outcry about recasting him for this movie so soon. Oh, yeah. Than doing it this way. So, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, their position yep. was hard no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, it, it's a rock and a hard place. I, I, and I, uh, you know, so I just, I just don't uh, envy them whatsoever. Yeah. So. Um, one of the, uh, as we were just talking about, um, this, this movie, um, is about the death of the protector. Um, and it is about the death of T'Challa and the way in which that impacts every single person, um, in this story, uh, in this world. And, you know, we begin the movie with T'Challa having died of a disease, um, that he, didn't really let anybody know about until it was too late. Um, and, uh, which is very similar to Jerry, what happened with Chadwick yeah, Boseman. Exactly. It's a, it's a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, and, and Shuri believes that she could have cured it with the heart shaped herb if she had had some. 
Uh, of course, you know, we remember from the first movie, Killmonger destroyed it all, uh, and she had been unsuccessful at that point in recreating the herb. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, obviously, this movie has to deal with this. How do you think the movie does in working through this kind of catharsis for the characters and for just us as, you know, the um, audience? So I will say I felt the whole way through that this was the overriding theme for sure, that it's about grief for anyone in our lives and how people deal with it and what's the proper way to deal with it that's healthy. Um, and then also it, what it was, what was needed for the audience and the cast to heal from the passing of Chadwick Boseman as well. Um, I felt like the way that they redid the intro, for example, to show all of the previous scenes of Chadwick Boseman solely instead of all Marvel characters was a very nice tribute to him. And then also both at the beginning of the movie, um, when they're going through his funeral in the movie, as well as at the end with Shuri on the beach, they have that very quiet sound of wind passing by as they show more scenes of him. And I felt like that was a really great way to also help everyone collectively take a breath, sit in that moment for a minute, and then be able to have peace with it. This is, the I think, the thing that the movie does the best uh, is dealing with this for the characters in the film mm -hmm. and uh, the, the challenge that it puts on all of them, you know, um, the unexpected death of a leader of a country is is something that is just, I mean, it, it rocks the country to the core. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was portrayed well in every single person here. Specifically, I think, uh, you know, and we'll talk a little bit later, but Angela Bassett, I think, does probably the best job in the film. Um, as she struggles to lead a nation she was not planning on ever being queen of again, uh, and just as a mother. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I, I thought this is where the movie is at its best. The struggle that I will say that I have with the movie, though, is it's difficult because we've all processed this a long time ago, and so it's hard to kind of go back and relive it um, and one of the things I think that probably hurts the rewatchability of this movie is that I don't know how many people want to go back and rewatch this over and over again um, when it has such a frustrating reminder that somebody was taken from us what we would deem too early. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's difficult. Uh, again, this is where it comes down to. It's like the rock in the hard place. You have to do it, but... It's it's also not necessarily a really pleasant experience to have to be in those emotions. And I think it's also hard, too, because um, this movie comes out, you know, it's been a while since we lost Chadwick. And I'm not in a place where I'm feeling those emotions the same way the characters are here. Mm -hmm. And so even though it is still sad 
it, it doesn't it doesn't quite transfer in the same way um, anymore as it would if this movie had maybe come out a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, closer. Uh, and so, you know, um, but again, I do think that this is absolutely where the movie is at its best, where it's really focused and it's actually where the the best character work comes from. Um, again, Angela Bassett, um, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, for Shuri, uh, and, uh, characters like Mbaku, you know, um, uh, this, this really brings to light some of these characters in ways, um, that are really cool. Uh, Nakia, Okoye, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they even Ross, you know, like they, they all have to deal with this loss um, and what it does to who, them and their characters is, is, is a major part of that. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because there's so much more to the f- film and I think that this having to also deal with the the loss of the character and Chadwick at the same time, the movie then is also never able to find an equilibrium, I think, between then these big action set pieces and everything and all of that. Like, it just, it feels a little bit unbalanced. Um and again, I th- I, th- I think that's the 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 place that you're going to be. You're going to have this intense tension um, of trying to create an entertaining movie, but at the same time, do it in a way that um, you know reflects the the loss and characters and all that i just it mm-hmm. it's a it's again it's it's just a hard place to be and, and so um it i i don't necessarily know that it all works together well but this part i think is the part that works the best mm-hmm. and i i'm surprised about how some of that made you feel because it, it definitely was the opposite for me um i do agree that this was the best part of it um the strongest character development and the most um interesting overriding thread to follow um for me it was a 50 50 mixture of positive and difficult emotions because on the one hand obviously it did for me at least bring back up all of those feelings of just the obviously i didn't know chadwick boseman but just the loss of someone that was clearly so kind hardworking, and hid what he was going through to get the job done when he didn't have to. Um, And then also having a a chronic illness myself, I can understand somewhat what he might've been going through. Right. Right. Um, But then I also feel like because at our ages in life, we've gone through grief before that you learn how to deal with it and, that it ultimately for me comes across like there's still something to live for in spite of what you're going through. And that's what I felt like the story was saying here to me. So that's why I don't feel like it's not necessarily rewatchable because I still get that positive message out of it. Even if the tone a lot of times is somber. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't expect everyone to, to agree with me on that. It's just, um, and I will begin to unpack different places where I feel like that the movie suffers, um, in other ways, but that was just a part of that. That's, that would say that might be, you know, just one of the first things that really came to mind for me as I've been thinking through this movie uh, after seeing it. And so, um, I was I was really interested, Christy, that this this movie I feel like has two meteors, figuratively and literally. <laughs> uh, figuratively, in the fact that obviously it feels like a, these this meteor of loss has hit Wakanda, right? Mm-hmm. But also, we learn that you know, in the first movie, we got told the story of Wakanda and the fact that a meter from space had landed in Wakanda and it was rich in vibranium and it's the only place that it had landed in the world. In this movie, though, we find out there were actually two meteors uh, and one had landed in the ocean, uh, which uh, is where Namor and his people live. And... This revolutionizes and kind of destabilizes, you know, everything for Wakanda. And I would say this is actually a place where I think the movie fails very badly um, in that we only see Okoye really deal with the fact that the founding mythology, the founding, and I I don't necessarily mean mythology as in untrue tales but like their theology their right their, their whole history life of, of wakanda of, exactly everything is based off this idea that you know their thought process that they're the only ones with vibranium that the, the wakanda was blessed with this and so the the way in which this would completely destabilize i think all of wakanda because you would then be left with what else may be that we believe might be untrue? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a place where I don't think the movie actually deals with the ramifications of something it, it introduces very well um, because it is such a earth-shattering, <laughs> you know, pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, revelation for all of Wakanda, and they never, ever deal with it whatsoever except for, you know, a, a brief conversation between Okoye and Shuri. Oh, right. And I mean, also not that many Wakandans actually know about there being more than one meteor now and source of vibranium. It's really just the people in that room. So, I mean, I do think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you are absolutely right. They don't go any further into it. And I hope maybe in the future they will, but that did kind of suck that they left left it sitting there and didn't explain further or have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I I mean I'm not sure that they don't know because you know we remember I mean the movie deals with the fact that other countries are searching for it by vibranium and you know like we know that there was we know that there was a vibranium detector created by this this person in the u.s that's found vibranium apparently at the 
the underside of the ocean. So it's like, I, th- I think it's nebulous. It's like, okay, who knows about this? And then like, you know, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think you're right. It's just like, that's a good call out. Like, okay, this, this has to be something that, that is dealt with in some way, because again, it's just, it is an earth shattering revelation and it would have an massive effect on uh the, the people of Wakanda and of course it you know we it does for the entire world here because mm-hmm. the revelation that there is vibranium in a place other than Wakanda is you know really interesting so well and if i could add too it also then goes back to the beginning of the movie where queen ramanda is in the court and says yes we have to protect what we have our resources because we don't trust what the rest of the world might do with them if they were in the wrong hands right, right. except now they are in the wrong hands <laughs> yeah I, I, no you're absolutely right and and of course you know they also make a joke of that with val saying how she wishes that you know she has that dream every day that the u.s has these these type of weapons and so, no, a hundred percent. You you are absolutely right. You know, we're we are dealing with this idea at the beginning that that the entire world is looking for vibranium because of what they've seen that it can do in Wakanda, and it's not just about weapons, right? I mean, vibranium gives Wakanda endless energy, and you know, I mean, so mm-hmm. it, it's it's not just about the idea of, of weaponization, you know. Um, so. And, you know, and I get this isn't a thing this movie doesn't touch on at all, but it's like very well. But, you know, when you're thinking about the the post end game world here where a world has been so completely turned upside down with people just reappearing and the idea of resources and everything. And we, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of saw that in like, say, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, obviously really dealing with that. But again, these threads, when we talked about the fact that the phase four has kind of been a mess narratively. This is one of the places where I think even this film could have picked it up even more, where it's like, with that United Nations scene, I think it's only scratching the surface of of why these countries would be looking for vibranium, and it doesn't just have to do with the fact that they would want weapons. Right. I, I think that's the really cheap way to go here, and again, that's another frustration to me uh, in this film. It's like, and phase four in general. So mm-hmm. this this film kind of encapsulates a lot of that. And so um so we meet Namor, who's our main villain. Uh who is he has this underwater kingdom. Um and uh that is, you know, in is very rich because of its vibranium deposit. Uh he himself is very bitter. Uh, at the surface world because um, his people were hunted um, by, you know, Spanish uh, conquistadors and they themselves, you know, the the last remnant of his people uh, before he's even born, they drink a, uh, a vibranium rich potion, much like the potion from Wakanda mm-hmm. that makes the Black Panther and allows them to breathe underwater. So, He's born, he's a mutant. He calls it out in the movie. He's a mutant. And and the fact that he's born 
uh, with his mother who drank this potion, and he has the ability to breathe underwater and on land, and he can fly because he has winged booties on his feet, which is interesting. See, I thought it was he actually has winged feet. Yeah, I mean, he does. I just was making fun of the fact that it, you know. Okay. It's, it's, anyway, so... um. So yeah, I, what did you what did you think of him? Because he's he's our main antagonist here, uh, other than the rest of the world wanting vibranium. Uh, Namor is our main antagonist for you know uh, not only uh, Shuri but also Ramonda and of course all of Wakanda. So and the world. I mean, gosh, you know he he really does threaten the entire world. Right? So. Yeah. Uh, I will say, first off, when I saw just the winged feet and didn't know for sure they were bringing Namor into this, um, I thought that they were literally referencing Hermes, the mythological Greek god. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, which would make uh, sense, like it, so seeing as a, he's the god it, of war. No, Hermes is a messenger. Mars is the god of oh, war. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. But you're, I mean, it's, it's it, 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 you know, um, I see what you're saying. So. He's a messenger of something, something bad. Exactly. <laughs> uh, he, he's, a, he's a harbinger of death in this movie. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But then, it, obviously, the more that they tell of him, you can completely understand where he's coming from, even if you don't see how he makes the jump to, you know, justifying everything he does. Um, I like that they are also using his story as a way to reference really bringing back up the whole subject of colonization and why the Wakandans call the American the colonizer instead of just the American. Um, just to remind people that they're what the world went through when people like the Mayans were conquered by the conquistadors or, um, you know, when people were enslaved and that there are still countries that are doing this. Um, I think is an important thing to show and to remind us that we don't want to repeat history. Um, and like I said, like it's clear, understandable fodder for Namor to become who he is. Um, but he goes too far. And that I think that he as a character also brings up a great point that then Shuri deals with later that vengeance is never the answer. You know, what's the saying? An eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. It doesn't fix the problem. It just makes it worse. And so I think that's what he continually finds out um, is that at the end of the day, by him going after everyone else because of what was done to his mother, he's just causing more and more destruction, even for his own people who he's wanting to get in a war possibly over this. I mean, it all starts because he says, hand over the scientist so I can kill her or else. And I love that yeah. Shuri is the one that's like, no, that's why would I kill an innocent person just because of her ideas? That's not going to fix anything. <laughs> Someone else will make a, a vibranium detector later. <laughs> mm -hmm. So as I've thought more about this movie, this movie has more and more fallen into the camp that it is basically the Iron Man 2 of the Black Panther franchise. And I say that because Iron Man 2 
all of the thematic elements that Tony had been through in the first movie, Mm -hmm. he went through again in the second movie. Mm. And so it just felt kind of like a repeat, but a messier repeat and one with more MCU connections. And that's exactly what this movie feels like with Namor because he's legitimately the exact same as Killmonger. His exact same motivations. He's been hurt by somebody. Uh, He's been hurt by the world. So he wants to take out his vengeance on the world. Mm -hmm. uh, And he wants to see it all burn, basically, so that he can rule. And it's the same film. And I don't like that. Mm -hmm. It bothers me. Uh, It's why I don't like Iron Man 2 as a film. Because... I've already seen it, and it was done better in the first movie. And I, Black Panther, I looked. It's still number eight in my rankings of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it's a very well-put-together film. It's a great movie, mm-hmm. very compact. It's well done. And, but I, my biggest problem in the movie comes with the fact that Namor has nothing new to add and therefore, he just feels like a retread of a better film and a better villain, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I mean, Killmonger was phenomenal. He's actually one of the best villains in the MCU, which they are, an MCU, to me, for the most part, a lot of times has a villain problem. Mm-hmm. And so all the things you said are absolutely the pluses that they are going for, but I think they undermine it by, if you just think about it for five minutes, mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, but we already saw that in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And I would have, then this is where, when I was speaking at the beginning, we were talking about the, the, the first script that they had before Chadwick had passed away. The idea of how they would have had this face off between, uh, T'Challa and Namor would have been really interesting to me because you have to change it. Otherwise, it literally is the first movie. Right. It's done over again. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, uh, you know, Shuri makes it slightly different here, but in the end, it's kind of the same. And so it just, that's where when we're dealing with the loss of T'Challa, I thought they did really, really well. Everything else that they do in this movie, it just is not great to me. And and it really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And, and in all honesty, I, I, we watched the movie with some friends and we all talked about it at the end. And we were all like, yeah, that just, that just didn't really, something's off. And then we kept talking about it and we realized, yeah, it's because it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah. I mean... I will add, I feel like, it, obviously, with the character um, having some differences from Killmonger, it helped. Um, I think that he had a really cool look. And I think that, too, that his introduction with them talking about it being based in ancient Mayan culture was really cool. Um, and even showing down to, like, the artwork on the walls, for example... Um, and the jewelry and things were very reminiscent of actual Mayan culture. Um, and the, it being based on Atlantis and being an underwater city and, you know, having to get there by um, 
Shuri wearing a special suit and everything, which they stole. <laughs> um, I thought was really interesting. I definitely can see how, you know, what you're saying about the character motivations are the same. Um, but I do see a couple of areas where he deals with things differently than Killmonger did. You know, I mean, Killmonger didn't have any interest in negotiation, whereas at least here, Namor starts with wanting to bring Shuri in alive and speak to the leader of Wakanda right. about an alliance. Right. And he's not trying to take well, over Wakanda initially. You know, Killmonger, it was much more personal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there there are some some slight nuances and variations. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right to call out the fact that he he wants to make Wakanda, uh, you know, a partner with him. Right. But he wants to make them a partner because he believes that they should feel about the world the same way that he feels about the world. Right. Which is and again, it's 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 very Killmonger-ish. Um, and he's willing to make them their enemy too, his enemy too, if they won't follow him. I mean, he basically says, give up the scientist or you're against me and I'll destroy you. And I'll you. kill you first. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, it really, I mean, again, there's some, there's some variations, but it's like variations on the exact same theme. Mm -hmm. And again, that's just what bothers me. And so... Now, you did mention something about the, the idea of creating a whole new world. Um, whole new so you got Talokan. Sorry. That's, exactly. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Uh, it ties into the ancient Mayan culture and everything, like you said. And so, you know, with, with just that kind of world creation, what did you end up thinking? Because, you know, in all honesty, we have been underwater before in Aquaman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this, this movie seems to be uh, kind of like, Okay, we have to do everything opposite of what Aquaman does because we can't be compared to Aquaman. Yeah, I think they did it well. I mean, for also being underwater, um, they really wanted it to show that it was not the same thing through how they did the um, costuming for the civilization as well as the overall design of like the buildings and things like that. They really wanted it to look more like it's a Mayan village, but underwater. Um, and I love that they even talked about with the character design that the, the costuming was based on things like a lionfish's fins, which I see in like the Namora's headdress, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, so some really cool things like that to call out to. I do think though, that they didn't give us enough time focusing on, namor's rapport with his own people you know if you think about that they they supposedly are willing to follow him to literally the ends of the earth but they don't ever show him being a super benevolent ruler that would cause people to want to follow him there's only that one scene where you know the the one girl was shot when um nakia was rescuing shuri and he's being kind and striking her hair as she passes. But otherwise, he seems to be a pretty awful person that no one would want to follow. So I think this is the interesting thing for me about the world building. You need to make this underwater world appealing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find it appealing at all. It's too dark and like it there was there's was nothing about it that 
that screamed like really cool or it just I think really part of it is just it was, you know, look, I get the idea that if that literally if you're that deep underwater. It's going to be dark. It's going to be dark, <laughs> right? You're, but you have to find some way to 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 make it look like a place that I should care about. Mm-hmm. Like make it a place that that is, I mean, you know, the, the, that's the thing about Wakanda, right? The, the The creation of Wakanda makes it seem like this amazingly beautiful futuristic place but is also one with the land in many ways and all those kind of things that just really makes it feel cool and like Mm -hmm. i would want to live in wakanda the last place i would want to live is talakan (laughs) i mean just because it feels dark and and foreboding and like there's you know even when you bring the vibranium sun up it just it it doesn't do enough to make this place feel like a place I would want to be, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and people might hate me for this, but I would much rather live in Atlantis from Aquaman than here because it feels like a amazing place to live, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I also was really disappointed and it didn't make sense. You know, one of the things that they did in Aquaman that made a lot of sense is that if you are somebody who lives that deep underwater, you'd basically be impenetrable. Uh, You would be bulletproof like Superman. Because of the pressure. Because you're, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can cut somebody at all or shoot somebody makes no sense that lives underwater this deep. And so uh, that was something it felt like they didn't really, f- you know, think all the way through. Um, and so that was a little bit frustrating too. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, I really do. I get what they're going for with the ancient Mayan culture. I think that's a great inspiration and everything, but I think they did not find um, a good enough way of making me like, I need to have something about this that that makes me feel for or like connect with in any way this world so that I would care about it being like that I would care about it. Yeah. And like I just don't feel like they do a good enough job there. And too, what I've kind of been picking up on that it made me feel similarly to you about is perhaps it you tell me if I'm wrong, perhaps your reason for feeling that way also is just that it comes across like they're just all angry all the time. That Yeah, like, I mean that it's not a pleasant I, I place you're right. to be because yeah. it's all about vengeance for their past. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than thriving. Right. Well yeah, and and I do th- I do think, you know, that's that's an it's just an unexplored theme of the film, which is, you know, that um, continually stoking the fires of hate uh, for things that have happened, th- you know, hundreds of years ago don't really do anyone any good, especially the people that live now, because there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can only move forward. Right. That I mean, that we can't go backwards and change what happened, but we can move forward. And hopefully make a better future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, a better future is not killing everyone. So 
yeah, I, that's, that could be part of it. So, um, Shuri is, is really uh, one of the main focal points of the film. Uh, and the fact that, uh, she's dealing with the grief and the loss of her brother. She's also feeling the guilt and the weight of, you know, not being able to save him in time. Um, and then she ends up having to deal with her own vengeance motivations, uh, that mere Namor in some ways, which mere's Killmonger. Uh, and in the end, she is able to create, um, a new, uh, heart shaped herb that is a mixture between their original heart shaped herb and the one, uh, that, uh, Namor's, uh, ancestors took. Um, which he gives her a bracelet that's made with um, some of the strings from that plant. And so she's able to combine it all and become the next Black, Black Panther. So what did you end up thinking about her story and how that all worked together? And does that mean she can breathe underwater too? <laughs> Possibly. Um, <laughs> so... I will say this was the main sticking point for me before I ever saw the movie about whether or not I even wanted to see it. Because first and foremost, I felt like the character that Shuri was in the first Black Panther never wanted the responsibility um, of being a ruler. She preferred to be supportive, to be the technological guru, to be the innovator but never to be in the spotlight, never to be the one making all the decisions um, or to be the protector of Wakanda. She did not want that. So mm-hmm. when I found right. out that she would be possibly becoming the next Black Panther, I was very much against it until I saw this movie. And I will say, yeah. I feel like they do do a good job of showing what it would take for Shuri to switch in that way. Um and to justify it to me that I'm okay now with her becoming the next Black Panther. Because mm-hmm. right. you see, even though her brother has passed and she's dealing with that and has said to her mother that it makes her want to burn the world, that she still is only dealing with that by hiding. She's hiding out in her lab working on things which makes sense, you know, she's kind of in denial and not wanting to move on and not sure how to. But the sticking point that makes her have to decide to do something differently is her mother's death. Because now she has no choice. She's backed into a corner where she's the next in line biologically for the throne. And they're still without a protector. And they have someone, Namor, specifically gunning for them now. So she has no choice but to step up to the plate and become the next Black Panther. So now I'm okay with that. Um, I do think it was a little too easy for her to create a new heart-shaped herb. I feel like that's kind of the easy way out of like, well, Killmonger destroyed them all. It's okay. We'll make one. Um, But I see how they got there um, kind of being natural for Shuri because she was that very innovative mind. Right. Right. What do you think? So I had no problem and I, I I knew they were going to make her 
Black Panther. Right? It's like, what else are they going to do? And on top of that, like, you know, them them using her to kind of recreate it. I think you're right. You know, all of that makes sense. You know, I think it was nice that they combined it with, you know, what she got from Namor. So, like, she couldn't do it by herself. Like, she needed a missing piece, you know, a missing link that she didn't know she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked that, it, again, it wasn't that easy where she could just do it on her own. She just needed enough time. Right. Um, I think that... I I struggle and and I'm I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say this but I struggle because her we, we've seen her story before play out. She just makes a different choice than Killmonger and Namor. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay. But I'm just not really invested um because uh she has to make that decision. It's it, it you know, like, it's not as though she's going to continue down that path. Like, there's never a question if Shuri is is going to make it in the end, right? She can't not make it. She's narratively constrained by where they want to go by making her the next Black Panther that she's going to have to make it through this. And I don't find it just that interesting of a journey, right? Because, again... This is a classic trope that I just don't find being done very interestingly. I, I think that's really the big problem. And part of that is, again, we saw it last time. Mm-hmm. Um, Killmonger just refuses to, you know, to change. Um, and that's never going to be an option for Shuri to not be able to do. And so if that's the case, this has to be really interestingly done. And... I just didn't find it very interesting. Hmm. Which is sad because I love that character from the first movie. I thought she's great. Mm-hmm. She's one of my favorite characters in the film. Um, so, yeah. But do you feel like her motivations for doing the things that she did were done well? Well, I mean, so let's jump to something else because this is where her big motivation comes and the fact that we get another death here. Mm-hmm. In that Ramonda dies, giving her life for Riri. We'll talk about in a second. Uh, this the scientist, um, and did we really need her to die in this movie? Yes. Like, I completely disagree with you. <laughs> but tell me why you think she needed to die? Because that was the sticking point that made Shuri change. That made her decide that she had to become the next Black Panther. I think that without her mother passing, she would have continued to try and avoid dealing with anything right. and moving moving on or even mm-hmm. stepping up for her country. I see what you're saying, but I don't agree with it. Okay. And because I think that you can put Ramonda in a coma where you all think she's going to die and then she lives at the end. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's a trope, but I would have liked that better because I don't think this character and I don't even think this this world needs another death in Wakanda. Like, I I, I feel like this is, is it's too easy to, to create the scenario where, again, Shiri is 
narratively backed into a corner and we and and we feel like Ramonda has to die so Shuri will act a certain way mm-hmm. instead of being more interesting like okay um could could Shuri not still be dealing with the her own guilt um her own feelings towards the way the world is treating Wakanda and all of these different things and and basically be struggling with some of the those those same feelings from a like a Killmonger or a Namor without her I think her without her mother dying. Mm-hmm. Um and it just I, I just yeah. It was like it was just one more thing that happened that was just really terrible in this movie and it's just it's so depressing and I'm like I we already are having to deal with the death of a major character. Um and I don't know if we need the death of another major character to make this character feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, I mean, Angela Bassett was probably the absolute best thing about this film, uh, just her performance in general. And it, the loss of her for the MCU, I just feel like is is a big loss when she was such a great character. So, um, yeah, I just uh, it's another choice that they make here in the script that I was really frustrated by. Uh, so, and I I completely understand that I I can definitely see because even for me it felt I felt jarred by it for sure I did not expect that they were going to kill her I thought it would be a close call, um so but for me then we differ just because I felt like that made it interesting, um because now where are they going to go, um sure you know what does a country do when two of its rulers now have both passed away and who's left has to deal with it. Um, I also thought that it made it interesting in that now Shuri, Nakia and Okoye get their time to really lead and figure some things out, not being overshadowed sort of by parent type Mm -hmm. figures. Um, and that was something that I liked. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess we can talk about it real quick, but, you know, the movie leaves it is that Shiri doesn't decide to be queen. Nope. She doesn't challenge to be queen. So she's not even like, you know, uh, in fact, the the person that I probably loved the most in the film, other than Ramonda, was M'Baku. And I loved the portrayal of him being this, this loving brother, basically, that Shuri had lost. Uh, basically taking the place of T'Challa for her mm-hmm. and giving her really wise counsel, uh, being very tender with her in, in, in the way that he dealt with her. Um, you know, he was very brash and everything in the first movie, but here I think there is, there is a real beauty to, and I think, I think he shows the importance of true manhood and what it looks like, which is he doesn't push his own agenda. You know, he doesn't take this time to, um, you know, further himself as leader when they're in the midst of all of this until the very end when as tradition uh allows him to he challenges for the throne and there's nobody else there to challenge him because Shuri doesn't challenge him right i will say so sorry um 
it was very funny. Like I literally laughed out loud in the theater when they said Princess Shuri and you see M'Baku step out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, that's not yeah. a princess. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think it's, and it's just, yeah, I, I loved him as a character and I thought he was great. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I actually would have actually liked more of him. I think it would have been really nice. Um, but, you know, when it when it came to the fact that, you know, the, the storyline of Shuri, if we needed the queen to die and, you know, where Umbako goes at next, you know, um, I, I think you can do all of those things without Ramonda having to die mm-hmm. um, because... Again, she never really wanted to be queen again in the first place. Like, that was not her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the only reason she's queen is because her husband has died and her son has died. It's like, again, can we stop having people die in Wakanda who are in leadership? Like, I, I think that's been done enough. So mm-hmm. um, so we do have uh, the scientist. Uh, we've got Riri Williams, who is the person that Namor's after because she's the one who's created uh, the detector of vibranium. Uh, turns out she's an MIT student who's a genius on the level of Tony Stark. Uh, and she's also going to be a character that we'll have on an upcoming Disney Plus series called Ironheart. She's a character from the comics. She takes over for Tony Stark. I mean, what did you think of her introduction here? Does it work for you? Does it fit the flow of the story? Did we need more introductions to another character in this film? I don't know. I'm just really interested to see how you think this fits. I think this was the number one piece for me that didn't fit. And I I liked the um, actress okay, but I felt like if you're going to introduce another character, now is not the time to do that. Um. And that they could have had a general, you know, scientist, nobody play this role um, rather than having to bring in Ironheart now. Honestly, I think, you know, for as little screen time as she got, which was justified because the character really wasn't necessary other than being a pawn between both sides constantly. Um I feel like it just wasn't necessary to be Ironheart and I don't even know who Ironheart is anyway. Um, and I don't think they introduced her very well. Um, and then too, I'll just say, I feel like them in general trying to say that she out of nowhere is this genius that's on the same level as Tony Stark. I just find a little hard to believe. I just need more. I need more credentials than that. <laughs> I think you absolutely 100% nailed it. You said, and this is this is great, like I, I didn't even think about mm-hmm. this, but I love that you said this, that she's literally a pawn between two sides and basically has no character motivation on her own. Nope. Like she's only here because of this. Again, it's a plot need. It's not a character need. Right. One side and wants to save her, one movie, wants to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> And this whole movie is about plot, not characters. Even though it wants to be about characters, so much of this is driven because we have to do a thing to get a character to another thing. And when you can tell that a story is having to do that, 
you are not writing a good story because I I should be so caught up in the narrative flow and what's happening that I don't feel that. That's what makes for good stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what makes the best stories. So, um, you know, I think the actress was fine in the role and everything. uh, And, you know, I only vaguely know who Ironheart is. But this felt like a place where we're just trying to introduce another piece of the MCU for later. And it didn't necessarily narratively fit well enough. And I don't really think it did the character justice. And this is another place where I think the film feels so much like Iron Man 2. Because remember, Iron Man 2 shoves Black Widow into that film. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily do her justice, really. She gets a couple of cool scenes, but I mean, she's really just a plaything for Tony in that movie. And that, that doesn't really do anything for the... So I, I think you just really have some some structural issues for the story here that are are are, are not helping the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to uh, ask you, uh, kind of ping on one other thing. Part of this is this movie is too freaking long. <laughs> it is almost three hours long. And I felt almost all three hours of it. Clearly. And... I was yes and in fact we all turned to each other after the movie was over and everybody was like that was really long like I love long movies right Mm -hmm. I love the Lord of the Rings extended editions I love Zack Snyder's Justice League you made me watch hours I I, yeah you know King Kong (laughs) by Peter Jackson um you know I have no problem with long movies but this movie was just it it felt overly long without actually really doing anything interesting with the, the time that I'm investing. And I think that, to me, was really frustrating. I didn't feel that way. <laughs> That's good. I mean, I'm glad you didn't. Uh, I actually didn't realize it was that long um, until I left and checked the time. But yeah, uh, I'll get into more of that in my final yeah. ratings. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. I mean, and obviously that's what, you know, the the filmmakers would want. Uh, and so I'm glad you didn't feel that way. So we talked a little bit about some of the other characters. We talked about M'Baku, but, you know, uh, we also had Ross and Val show up in this movie. And Akia is back. Okoye. So how did you feel about, you know, which also... It was pretty long. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, how did you feel about their parts in the film? Did it did it work well enough for you that they they were there and that they got screen time, or did you feel maybe some of those characters could possibly have been excised? No, I felt like all of them were still necessary to the story. Um, I actually thought that the best way that they've brought in an outside character into a story was bringing Val into this movie because we previously only ever saw Val played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Falcon and Winter Soldier. So this was actually a really natural fit and having her be the ex of Ross, who we've seen in the previous Black Panther movie, I think just makes it feel very um, funny and an easy way to fit her in. And then also that she's the head of the CIA. Um, 
And I thought his story here of the struggle between do I help my friends or do I honor what my job wants me to do was really good. Um, Even the joke about answering the call of the beads, making it look like his phone. Um, He's just such a good actor. I love him. Um, And then I wanted to say the one thing I do feel like, um, although I thought Okoye's story here was interesting, I do think she would have also made a good alternative as the new Black Panther so that Shuri didn't have to step up to do that. But I, I do like the way that they did it for Shuri. Um, and I hated the Midnight Angel costume. I'm with Okoye on that oh, one. Terrible. Like, what is this? It No. It was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but Nakia coming back felt very needed because she was the other person outside of the immediate family that had the closest relationship to T'Challa. And they had a very obviously back and forth relationship. Um, and then M'Baku, I think you hit the nail on the head with him being like a new brother figure for Shuri and his yeah. kindness and gentleness and um, being able to lead with honor, but not being a jerk. Yes. That's ooh, good point. I mean, you're just, killing it tonight oh, Christy, with the point I, <laughs> seriously um so obviously ross has to be in the movie somewhere because of the situation uh, and i get them bringing in val it was kind of interesting the fact they were married um there are a few scenes with them where i didn't necessarily believe that they needed to be there uh i mm-hmm. think they could have cut a few of their scenes down um it, it I mean, it does explain a lot as to who Val is now and why she's going to be important moving forward. Obviously, going to have the Thunderbolts movie, uh, you know, where she's a big part of that. She's been putting that team together slowly uh, in phase uh, four. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, that's all interesting in some ways. It's MCU connection stuff, but it's also the Iron Man 2 feeling again where it's like, yeah, we're connecting things, but it's like, is it really actually helping the story that we're telling? Mm-hmm. And in this movie, there are certain parts where Ross and Val do, but then any other scenes where they're not necessary, I, I think they could have been excised. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. Okoye's story was interesting here, um, and obviously her struggle, I think it was good. Yeah, the, the costume's terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, and, you know, Nakia, I think you're 100% right, You and then you nailed it again. She really does need to be here. And part of that is that she has a massive secret at the end of the movie, which is she has given birth to T'Challa's son. Um, And, you know, he is actually next in line to be king when he's old enough. And, you know, I think everybody kind of saw that coming. I don't know if anybody was really surprised by that. I was. Okay. There you go. There you (laughs) go. Call me dumb. Why don't Um, you? (laughs) uh, No, I just... uh, my wife turned to me and goes, of course. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and my wife's pretty good. She's sometimes even better than I am, in all honesty. I'll give her credit uh, at calling things like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think they were all good and, and they did a, a, a good job. Uh, there were some points where some of the stuff I felt like could have been cut down for time. But um, lastly, we always talk about the action and, and or the music. And, and so just kind of combining those two here at the end is where the show is running a little long uh, for everyone. And so 
How did that work? Because obviously Ludwig Göransson's score for the first movie was kind of a revelation for a lot of people uh, in the way that he created this sound. Um, and of course, that worked so well with the action. Um, and so how did all of that work here for you, since that's really such an important part for the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I think once again, he hit the ball out of the park. Um, this was one that I immediately was listening to the soundtrack and the score in the car jamming out by myself. Um, I love the very like tribal African drums kind of sound that they're going with the, with this soundtrack. It obviously fits well for uh, a place that they say is part of Africa as a continent. Um, and it's so uplifting where it needs to be and then very somber where it needs to be here. And I think, you know, like we talked about as well earlier, that especially with the scenes of Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther scenes being shown at the beginning and then at the end of the movie, they do a great job with the sound work of just being kind of quiet and sounding like the wind rushing by, um, signifying that you need to take a moment to take a breath. Um, and I also really liked the original song that they did with Rihanna that plays at the end of the movie, um, Lift Me Up. It was actually apparently the first music she did um, since 2016. Um and was a really beautiful tribute, I felt, to Shuri and how she was feeling in that moment um, and burning the funeral clothes and finally really accepting what's going on, but still wanting to feel her brother's and mother's presence. Um, I just really like that phrase, um, keep me safe and sound, that plays in the song. So I just really wanted to especially give a shout out to the music because God, I love Gorenson's music. Yeah, I think for me, his score here works better in the film than it did. I was listening to it outside the film, just on the soundtrack, and I wasn't loving it. Um, mm -hmm. So it doesn't work as well for me. The The first soundtrack I find really enjoyable to listen to just by itself. Mm -hmm. um, and But I think it works great inside the movie. Uh, it, you know, everything he's doing, I think really works there. Um, and so, uh, which again, not every soundtrack for me needs to be one that I listen to outside of the movie, mm -hmm. um, and for it, especially for it to work for the movie anyway. You know, I, I think the action here is fine. Um, I think there are places where it's really cool or whatever. Um, nothing really stood out to me in in any way shape or form you know uh the effects work is good and bad as most marvel movies are mm -hmm. um, but i wasn't necessarily like blown away by any of the action that we get in the film um, it all felt very much like things that we've just seen before um and so it's serviceable um i i don't think you know in any way though that i was just like bowled over by any of the action set pieces um so, yeah, uh, which, you know, uh, again, that's it, it's neither good nor bad. It just that's what it was for me. So what did you think of uh, what did they call it? The Sea Panther. <laughs> the <laughs> <Yeah>. boat. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was fine. Um, I was like, yeah. what? 
Is this like the Jawa mobile on the ocean? That's that's a good point. <laughs> it, that's was, a good point. it was weird. So. Um, I realized one thing we didn't mention, speaking of action, was the resolution between Namor and Shuri. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that was a, a weakness for me because I felt like if he was able to impale her through the suit, through her body, out the other side. Mm-hmm. How would she be able to pull it out and then just get better? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously they have regenerative powers, I guess. But, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, it. it yeah. Like, I thought she was about it to was, die at first. Yeah, I thought so, too. Um, but you know, everybody's fine in the MCU except for her mom. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> she drowned, so she's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course there's no coming back from that. <laughs> um, so I, Christy, I am very interested to see what you are going to rate Black Panther Wakanda forever. So obviously you and I felt differently about this, but I love that we can give our pluses and minuses and, um, pre-discussion just say hmm interesting um and we can move past it i felt like more than anything with this movie that it was so needed right now in general because of chadwick boseman's passing and then also to show um that the mcu has some heart to it still um i think that that was the overriding theme. The grief piece really drove it home for me. And I mean, I'll tell you, I bawled it openly in the theater at the beginning and at the end. Um, happy tears at the end, but just for how much it moved me emotionally. Um, even though there were these areas that we agreed that they could have been written better, I felt like overall, I still really found it meaningful, enjoyable, um, and most of all, like I said, obviously emotional. Um, and it changed my mind about what I thought I wanted for Shuri as a character. And I love the way that they decided to handle that, even though I might have originally picked Okoye instead of her. Um, they justified it for me. So ultimately, I still end up giving this movie a three and a half out of five stars um, because I feel like it, it does need some big things to give it that extra um, to really push it over the top for me, but is a solid experience and I would go back and rewatch it. And I've told several yeah. friends already how much I really enjoyed it. Nice. So for me, um, this movie really suffers from a lot of things. Uh, one is the narrative structure of the film. Uh, two is the repeated nature of a lot of the themes from the first movie. Three is the length of this movie. Uh, and four, in all honesty, it just didn't connect with me in a lot of different ways. Um, and it has to do with a piece of all the stuff that we've talked about throughout the film. Mm -hmm. It's a miss. Just out and out miss. Uh, I'd say it's about a two and a half out of five stars. It might be a two later on. Um, but in all honesty, 
I had planned to see this movie a second time. And we're leaving the theater. I'm talking to my wife. And I'm like, I think I'm just going to return my ticket for Saturday because I don't really want to see this again. Mm. Uh, And that was, maybe that's the most damning thing I could say about the film. Yeah. I just don't want to see this again. You know, I'll have to watch it again when we do Assembling Avengers, but I I probably won't ever watch this movie again other than that. It just, it, it because it's like, and I feel the same way kind of like about Iron Man 2. Like, I've seen that movie enough. I don't ever need to see it again. You know, there are certain movies in the MCU where I'm just like, I just never see need to see that again. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, th- this movie just really suffers from being overstuffed and um it yeah choices that i think were just not the best choices um so i would have i think if i just to give my constructive criticism in a way so it's not like i'm just trying to tear everything down i think this movie just needed to be way more focused mm-hmm. and if you told a much smaller story focused on the loss and that that them dealing with that, uh, I I think that would have been where this movie would have helped, because the reason I give it two and a half uh, is that it's like half a good movie because when it's dealing with the loss of T'Challa, I think that it's where it's at its best. Mm-hmm. And everything else just doesn't really work for me very well. So, um, but Chrissy, uh, if you wanted to give your recommendations for everybody this week. I'm very excited to see what you're going to recommend. Well, thank you. Uh, I actually am going back to the other medium that I watch a lot, which is YouTube. Um, Hopefully nobody's sick of me recommending YouTube people yet. Um, But I um, have been on a personal journey of just like some self-improvement health and nutrition wise lately. And someone that's really been a new discovery for me that's been very helpful is a um, creator named Melanie Patricia Cruz. Nice. Um, Yeah, she is very much um, a realist, which is what I like about her so much. She's super down to earth and just a person that comes on very like vlog style, um, but does it with a nice camera and shows her life and shows these are some easy things you can make yourself every day to eat and be healthy. Um, These are the workouts that I do every day and how to also slow down and enjoy your life and not focus so much on I've got to go, I've got to do, I've got to this and that and the other. Um, That you can have goals, but don't let that run your life where you're not enjoying the present. So I think that she's a great person to watch and is very funny. So I, I highly recommend checking out Melanie Patricia Cruz on YouTube. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am going to recommend everybody uh, check out the new season of Yellowstone that that just started this week as we're recording. Uh, So that has just started. It is, oh man, season five is starting off with an incredible bang. And I'm also really excited that um, coming up in December 1923, which is the next prequel series for that, uh, is coming out and it's going to be starring Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford. Ooh. So like 
How amazing is that with some other incredible actors and actresses that are going to be joining that show? So I can't wait for that as well. The Yellowstone series and uh, its universe that it's created is just awesome. So could not recommend it more. Uh, But Christy, if people wanted to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, where would they find you? Well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And of course, on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And I did a completed show with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabres and Spells over on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And I don't know if you've heard, Matt, I was recently a guest on um, the Scott Shots Patreon show uh, Scott does for DC Squadcast. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, we talked about the Henry Cavill news. So I hope that people will check that out as well. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely should check that out. So, uh, well, you could find me all over the place uh, under social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and Vero. You can find me in all of those places. We'd appreciate your follow and just getting to talk to you there. You can also find me, of course, here on the network outside of the Six Hundred Two Club. I'm doing a bunch of shows, literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, the Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. You'll also find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got two shows there. One is about Harry Potter. It's called Owl Post, and Drea Kaufman and I walked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then you'll find me with the great John Mills doing Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast. But... Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Mm-hmm.